It's Thursday, January 14th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Mark Reith, and joining me in studio today from Million Dollar Portfolio, Jason Moser. Jason, it is a pleasure to have our very first show together in 2016. It's been a while. It's been I too guess long. that's uh, you know, it's a good way of putting it. The first one in 2016, first of hopefully many, I guess. It's been right? a year. Oh my gosh. Well, well, sort of. It's been since last year. It's been since yeah. last year, if you want to be technically sure. correct, which is the best kind of correct. Sure. Uh, we've got a lot to talk about in our first show together here, uh, including news from Best Buy, Chipotle. Of course, we'll discuss the recent Powerball drawing. But we've <laughs> got to start with GoPro. Uh, that's the big story in the market today. GoPro shares have hit an all time low after the company said it was cutting 7% of its staff. And its sales were way down. First and foremost, tell us a little bit about this announcement and what the heck is going on with GoPro. Sure, I mean GoPro is one that I, I honestly, for a time when it went public, I was cautiously optimistic here. I I thought maybe there there was something there. Now this is coming from the perspective of someone who's never owned a GoPro camera, uh, but it did seem like it had developed sort of that rabid fan base that that you like to see. Um, it, at the end of the day, though, I mean, looking at this, I mean, I think investors have to look at this really as a broken story. I mean, I think hmm. it, it it was always a device maker, right? And the key there for them, from the investing perspective at least, was that they were going to pursue this bigger strategy of becoming a media company. Right. So that's all fine and dandy, but that media strategy doesn't matter if you can't sell cameras, if you can't grow that installed base of, of camera users, then the media strategy is, is only going to take you so far. And I think that this holiday season, I mean, I think the question is is legitimate. Have we not sort of hit that saturation point with GoPro's uh, camera market? I mean, it is a bit of a niche offering, right? And I think... Uh, you know that's the question today. I mean, we know that it was it was a less than stellar holiday season. We know that that new camera they were trying to promote, they had to go through two price cuts. There still weren't able to sell it. They were taking a hit, you know, from this writing off unnes- you know unused inventory, which is just always always a big no no. Um, to me, it, you know, again, it just if you're not selling the cameras, then the media strategy, you know, matter. that that was always a tough one to kind of to kind of get a, a grip on anyway. But but you know we figured at least if you're selling these millions and millions of cameras then at some point then it makes sense. But again, you go back to the camera itself. Maybe they can go back to really what they do really well and just sort of making relatively cheap, affordable cameras that that their uh, you know loyal GoPro users want to use. Well, is it affordability? Because you said two price cuts for this camera. It's supposed to be small. It's the Hero Four, is the yeah. camera, right? Well, and I'm glad you asked that because I mean like if you gave me a GoPro camera. I mean, and this is nothing against GoPro. I would probably just find someone to give it to because I don't know that I would ever use it. I mean, I don't think people really. I don't pretend to think that people are that interested in my day, where I should be like offering up a GoPro as we periscope for my yeah, while dropping my kids off at school and picking them up in the afternoon and cooking dinner. That's the extent of my day. And on the weekends, it's just getting to dance class and gymnastics and soccer games. So I mean, like, but what do your kids do? Well, hey man, latch one of those things to my dog. Perhaps that could be pretty fun. Maybe throw one on my kid's head. She plays soccer. That could be pretty cool too. I don't know, but uh, again, I mean, I I wonder if maybe we haven't hit sort of the saturation point with that GoPro audience, and if that's the case. Then I mean, how how much do they upgrade? How why, why would I need to buy a new GoPro camera? Um, and and if you only are selling so many cameras, then how robust can that media strategy really be? So while you know we love to find companies that are founder led, and this one is with Nick Woodman at the helm there. Again, you know all of these historical numbers that always look so good: margins, cash flow, growing sales. 
it looks like those days are coming to a close. Mm-hmm. And as we know, the market's always forward-looking. I think the reaction to the stock today is appropriate. And uh, you know, if folks out there are wondering if this isn't like a, a really great value right now, perhaps it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but before you say that, try to identify the catalyst that's going to turn things around. Because if you can't identify that catalyst, uh, then then we could very well be looking at a value trap here. Before the show, Mac Greer charged in here with twenty dollars <laughs> and said, "Hey, I can buy all of GoPro for this, right?" Yeah, that was that was that was, that was good. He it made was, it funny. He made a good funny. Yeah, that was. I don't want to laugh at GoPro investors' misfortunes here, though. Sure. Let's be very clear. Sure. Uh, I mean, because there are people who have invested in this business, and if you invested in this business a while back or at the IPO, you you certainly are are in the red right now. And it's not to say that things won't get better. They they certainly can. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I mean, I think in in a case like this, you have again a founder led business. He's going to do everything he can to try to figure out how to make this business successful because he has a lot of his fortune tied to it as well. Sure. Um, I, I would just urge investors to try to identify the catalyst and and then furthermore position size accordingly. This is a much riskier bet today than it was, you know, a month ago, two months ago, because there are there's a lot more certainty out there right now, and that certainty isn't very good. Well, those early investors should they be? Are they going to start pushing GoPro's buttons towards some sort of selling uh, point where they say, "Okay, let's find a company that does have an established uh, media uh, plan or program. We sell GoPro to that company." Is there such a company out there that could swoop in and take over GoPro, and you see it as a good buy, or is GoPro kind of just stuck out there in the open water? Um. I mean, an acquisition has always been one of those things that's been kind of uh, up for debate. And I know that there was some speculation out at CES this past week where Google perhaps at one point might find GoPro an attractive acquisition. Right. People have always talked about Apple as well. And I think that's certainly something that could happen. I think the, the question, though, again, is though, assuming an acquisition, those problems are still there. Right. Right. I mean, those problems are still there. So, you know, yeah, you're buying a, a pretty well established brand on the cheap, and perhaps you're opening it up to a, a bigger uh, base, whether you're Apple or Google. But again, I mean, I think an acquisition is you're still going to have to recognize that the challenges are still there, and what do you do to overcome those challenges? And I think that's really that's the biggest question for investors today. I'm not saying I have the answer. I'm saying those are the questions you really want to want to try to answer. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Uh, You mentioned market saturation earlier, and we touched on CES very briefly. Uh, Speaking of which, let's pivot very quickly to Fitbit, which is down dramatically ever since they announced their new smartwatch the other week. Uh, is this a similar situation to GoPro, where Fitbit is entering the smartwatch market, which is already saturated with a lot of pretty good options that are only going to keep on getting better? Uh, or is there something maybe more inherently not so great fundamentally with Fitbit's business? Yeah, I mean, Fitbit, I've always admired that they were pursuing just that, that particular market in sort of wearable fitness. Right. Um, I, I think they, generally speaking, had established a pretty good brand identity to this point and a, re, you know, a relatively decent ecosystem from users that I had spoken with. Again, I've never used a Fitbit. Uh, I mean, I know that I mean, the smartwatch market, you know, excluding like just fitness wearables, I mean, I think the, the smartwatch. Market is is going to be a little bit more particular, and I think we've probably hit, I think in the near term at least, sort of the peak smartwatch. In other words, we're still trying to answer the question: Why do I need a smartwatch? Mm-hmm. Um, if if I'm a, a watch enthusiast, what I care for is a smartwatch. If I don't wear a watch at all, is a smartwatch that compelling to where I'd want to wear one? 
those questions haven't been answered either. And so for me, I mean, like with with Apple, for example, we talked about the Apple Watch, and it's been sort of a lukewarm offering thus far. It's done okay, but by Apple standards, certainly, I wouldn't call it you know the, the best product they've ever offered. Right. Perhaps one day that'll change. I mean, I always felt like Apple kind of missed missed the mark there in that they could have pursued a really uh, dedicated fitness device mm-hmm. that that might have attracted a far larger a larger audience because they could have, could have priced it more attractively. Uh, with Fitbit, it's always been a very attractive price for the device. It's, it's it's affordable by by most people, and I think they had a pretty good holiday season. But then you see these questions about litigation in the devices aren't doing what they say they're going to do. Yep. You're not measuring my steps correctly. Uh, I mean, I I can say. My my iPhone, my wife's iPhone. I don't know that they're necessarily measuring steps or flights of stairs correctly either. So then, like, if it's not measuring it correctly, how much can you rely on it? And further, if you're trying to sell these devices and saying, well, they can measure your heartbeat, your blood sugar levels, well, that's fine. But I mean, are they accurate? And so that's the biggest question there. Um, and with Fitbit. That's going to be something that they have to overcome. That's a hurdle that you really need to overcome. People need to depend on that device and rely, you know, feel like they have confidence that it's going to be giving giving them the the correct readings. So, again, I, I could see a larger market for something like a Fitbit user versus a GoPro user, but still, uh, early stages for wearable fitness and wearable devices. I think they will get better as time goes on, and, and I think Fitbit has established a good enough brand identity out there to to overcome some of these initial challenges. Hmm. Uh, before we move on, if we talk GoPro, we have to talk Amberella, which yeah. is their biggest supplier of chips. Uh, if you're an Amberella investor, you know what you're getting yourself into. You know your company's fortunes are largely tied to those of GoPro. Do you just I guess my question is, do you accept that as a reality of doing business, and you just say, well, we better hope GoPro does well this quarter, or is this a point where you start putting pressure on Amberella's management to start maybe diversifying away from GoPro, looking elsewhere? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think going into an investment with Amberella, you could look at it from one of two ways, and you could say they're t- they're so tightly tied to GoPro that if GoPro really takes off, then that's great for Amberella. Mm-hmm. Um, in theory, at least, and if GoPro fails, well, then that's not so great for Amberella, uh, because they, Amberella about a third of Amberella's sales are tied to GoPro. Right. Um, you know, the interesting thing when it comes to these chip makers, and and I know it's not a an opinion that a lot of people want to hear, um, but but these chip makers, I mean, they are in a position in the supply chain that's just not very attractive. Mm. At least that's my my opinion. Um, it, it's just not a very attractive position in the supply chain because they're constantly spinning that hamster wheel, trying to top the next best thing that's out there. They're always having to get better. You know, as soon as they hit one point of great technology, well, then someone else comes along and and tops them, and then they have to top that. And so they're constantly spinning the wheels there. And and then you know if they land those big supply contracts, well, typically those big supply contracts come at the cost of some pricing, so they're a little bit less profitable, and that doesn't really necessarily translate you know well for investors either. So with Amberella, you know, I mean that that to me has always been the big question. I kind of wonder if we're not looking at another Invincense type of situation where it's great technology for the consumers. Mm. You and I get to benefit from this thing, and we love it. Uh, because we get all of the products that are made with this great technology, but from an investor's perspective, the market's always trying to figure out what's next, and and these guys are always trying to spin that wheel and, and top the next best thing, and it just becomes a very difficult uh, a hurdle to constant to consistently clear. And I think with Amberella, again, I think the response is correct. I mean, at least 
not all of their sales were tied to GoPro, and there are other avenues. And we did definitely see, you know, management was trying to uh, sort of steer that that tethering with GoPro, uh, steer investors away from, from to, focusing yeah. on that. And I think they need to keep on doing that because right. I think that Amberella could still be quite successful because that technology applies to more products, whereas GoPro really is reliant on GoPro, and that, that's going to be a bigger problem. Well said. Okay, uh, let's move on. Uh, Best Buy announced some numbers uh, today. Uh, some of the highlights, or I guess lowlights, included domestic <laughs> sales uh, through January 2nd fell 1.2%. Uh, Best Buy has been spending so much money recently on trying to spruce up their stores, trying to uh, come into their own in terms of online purchases, trying to spruce up their, their website. Uh, it looks like they're still struggling. Uh, what's your take on Best Buy? Mark, can I ask you a question? You sure can. How many times did you go to Best Buy this past holiday season? This past holiday season, I think I stepped foot in a Best Buy on Black Friday. Just so for, you did? Just, okay, you went on Black Friday. Just for the sake of I'm a big Black Friday oh, shopper. Are you really? I'm okay. one of those crazies who You're gets up way too early, early, and I gave it a shot. <laughs> I wasn't going for like the big, you know, doorbuster items, but I, I, I stepped foot in there. Did you walk out with anything? I did not. Ah, very interesting. So you went in and you came out empty-handed. Hmm. Um, I yeah, I, mean, I don't remember the last time I went to Best Buy, and I think that's probably one of the biggest uh, you know problems they're facing. And I mean, with a weak holiday season. GoPro, is, you know, obviously had a weak holiday season. Uh, we've seen headwinds as far as smartphones, and those are two of Best Buy's, you know, biggest drivers. Right. Uh, so weakness in in those are going to, uh, you know, offer up weakness in their general, um, you know, sales numbers for the holiday season. I can't help but feel like Best Buy's loss is Amazon's gain. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I hate to sit here and go back to Amazon, but the fact of the matter is that. Um, Amazon continues to change the the retail space in every in every way. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that Amazon had a tremendous holiday season with bringing in somewhere in the neighborhood of three million Prime members the week before Christmas. Uh, there are uh, assumptions out there or uh, estimates out there that, that there are now about forty one million households domestically that are Prime members. And to put that in context, Costco around forty five million member households really? domestically. Hmm. Uh, and so you know. That seems like it's a pretty reasonable comparison there. I mean, if they're at 41 million today, I think that's only going to continue to grow because it is a tremendous value proposition that extends well beyond just free two-day shipping, mm-hmm. um, and it just extends that that customer relationship all throughout the year. You buy more stuff from Amazon, physical goods, digital goods, books, games, what have you. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that Best Buy, you know, they, the challenge is number one, drive traffic, and then number two, they're they're maintaining a very uh, sort of a capital heavy structure there in maintaining that big footprint of stores. So I don't know. I mean, uh, to me, uh, the top line at, at Best Buy has remained stagnant over the past uh, few years. I mean, forty billion dollars in sales isn't insignificant. But when you compare it to Amazon's 100 billion, and, and Amazon's still growing at double digits, there it is. I mean, I think it's clear where you. Probably want to be placing your long-term bets here, and and it's not, in my opinion, uh, with Best Buy. Speaking of Amazon, really quickly, uh, before the show, I was talking to Chris Hill and David Gardner, and we were talking about that figure you found, where something like thirty-eight percent, or was it twenty-eight? Well, thirty-eight percent was the estimate. Yes, so households in the U.S. have Amazon Prime memberships, Uh which is insane, by the way. Yeah. Uh, David Gardner, huge Amazon fan. He's been investing in them for 20 years now, mm-hmm. something like that. Chris Hill asked the very uh, pointed question of, 
as an Amazon investor, are you more excited about Amazon Prime or Amazon Web Services? Which is more important to the future of the company? I'll tell you David's answer after I hear your answer. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, and I think if we we look back at the past five years for Amazon and how the stock price seemed to always sort of defy expectations, and your Amazon bears always said this didn't make any sense. It's just an e-commerce play, which is fine, but they lose they constantly lose money. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think really the enthusiasm hit when they lifted the hood on that Amazon Web Services side of the business and and showed us how profitable it can be and how much growth is still there. For me, going forward, I think Amazon has already proven uh, beyond a reasonable doubt its value as as a retailer in the mm-hmm. general e-commerce space, and I think that that e-commerce is just becoming really the norm. I think that as we continue to move online, as we continue to focus on, uh, you know, data and and just the general nature as, as technology advances, to me, um, I'm, a, I'm more interested, more excited by the Amazon Web Services side of the business, just because I think that has so many applications. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, and I think there are still some some unknowns. There's some questions left to be answered. Um, that I think could certainly uh, be seen as positive drivers for years to come. So I'm going to say Amazon Web Services. But with that said, I mean our, our family has been Prime members for you know five six years, You're and, one of and those it's households. just a cost of living. I mean, yeah. I, they could charge five hundred dollars for Prime, and I would still pay it. I mean, it just we use it that much, <laughs> right, so it's. Right. What was David's answer? David's answer is actually Prime, ah. uh, just because you're right. Uh, web services has proven to be profitable, and it will be for the future. Mm-hmm. His point was that uh, Prime has a a lot of things going on with it, not just you know ordering on the cheap, but also, for instance, uh, the media services there yeah. uh, could be a huge value driver going forward. But also that when we're talking households, we're talking kids are using Amazon Prime mm-hmm. as well to buy their parents, you know, their Christmas gifts, for instance. I know that's one I did, uh, and that's just going to become ingrained in people, and they're just going to keep on using Amazon over and over to the point that, in the future, Amazon Prime, it's just going to be you know, something you do. Yeah, uh, and I, I think that's a great way to look at it, yeah. too. You know, I mean, I think I, I look at my kids, they're, they're 11 years old, 9 years old, and, and I look at their behaviors today to try to kind of you know, project what, beha- what their kind of consumer behavior will be when they're older and making their own money. And I mean, at, the, at their ages now, I mean, they are very much. You know, ingrained in that Amazon Prime sort of mentality. So I, I think there's a lot to be said for that. And I think that at 38% of households today, I, I suspect that number is going to be far, far larger here in the next decade and beyond. And so, yeah, I, I think either way. <laughs> I was going to say, you're, it's you're a probably going to be a good winner. Yeah, you're going to be yeah. a winner either way. But yeah, definitely a great way to look at it. Let's, uh, let's quickly wrap up with Chipotle. As usual, we, you and I talk far too often. And since you're here, we have to talk Chipotle. <laughs> yeah. So let's very quickly Chipotle is trying to win back its customers after its E. coli scares in October. Uh, sales are down something like 30% in December as a result of that, which mm-hmm. is a huge drop. Yesterday, it made some promises for how it plans to fix things. Jason, what is Chipotle's plan? And do you buy it in two minutes? Go. <laughs> two minutes. Two minutes. Uh, yeah, I do buy it. I mean, Chipotle, they, they 
offered up a presentation yesterday to sort of address what's been going on and address how they are going to deal with it here in the future. And they gave us a better understanding of sort of how they see the business unfolding here over the course of the next few years. Uh, to me, listening to the presentation, I felt like they took a tone of humility hmm. uh, along with confidence that they can get this thing turned around. And I think that, again, you have a founder leader there and Steve Ells, and I think that really, at the end of the day, this is going to be his legacy. So, I think he really is going to uh, do everything he can to, to win back his customers' trust. Now, there's some customers out there, Mark, who who never stopped the never stopped trusting uh, a oh, Chipotle. I've been, eating. I've been eating there. Uh, it never stopped me, right? Mm-hmm. And I've been taking advantage of those shorter lines. And fortunately, I never got sick. Uh, but it's interesting the steps they're taking. They're going to mitigate some of these risks by, in particular, they referred to tomatoes and lettuce. Those will be coming out of central kitchens now versus uh, where they used to be prepared on site. And hmm. I think that those are two higher risk foods that they recognized. So they will add testing. They will add, you know, they will tighten up the supply chain a little bit, add a bit more transparency to it, so that they can sort of come up with better answers. Because as it stands right now, there still are they haven't been able to pinpoint necessarily exactly what happened. Right. Um, but but again, I mean, the key is bringing customers back into the stores. They've recognized that 2016 is going to be basically blow up your margin expectations for this year because it's going to be a different game. Yeah. Those 28 percent restaurant margins, restaurant operating margins, are going to be more like 20 percent, possibly even lower. One of the biggest advantages Chipotle has always had, and as investors we've loved, was they have pricing power. Mm-hmm. They were able to raise prices incrementally when the cost of food went up a little bit. That's going to go away for a little while. They they mentioned this in the conference, and you know it's something that for 2016 and even into 2017, we probably shouldn't expect any price increases because you know number one, I don't think that's really the right thing to do, and and I think they recognize that and they really have their priorities straight. Number one, get customers back there, and raising prices is not necessarily the best way to do that. Right. Um, but you know, you look at the general market opportunity there. They're talking about the next two, three, four thousand stores that they want to open. The story fundamentally is the same. This is a big hiccup, and it's it's not something to be taken lightly. But I've I've said before, if there's one management team you want managing through a crisis like this, this is the one. And I think they've done a good job so far. And I think the market's reaction. Is based on a little bit more certainty, a little bit more belief that they will be able to overcome this, and and you know we know that generally speaking, the American consumer is pretty quick to forget things like this. Um, you know, I mean, for all of the people out there who say I'm never eating at a Chipotle ever again, I, I think you we'll will. See. I think you will. Yeah. So I think I think uh, you know investors in Chipotle today. Stay invested in this business, and I think uh, take the opportunities during 2016 uh, to build the position because I think when we look back, uh, this is going to be seen as a year to really, you know, an opportunistic year for investors. All right, uh, we promised to talk about the Powerball, but this is a long show already, so we're going to wrap well, things up. Well, I mean, up. you know, what would you do with 1.6 billion dollars, Jason? Real well, what, quick. Would, what would you do? I'd buy Chipotle franchises. They don't franchise. I know that's, ah. that's the problem. So you'd Maybe probably I, try to sweet talk me. I was going to say, uh, me and Steve Ells, we just uh, you know shoot the breeze, yeah. eat some Chipotle. Uh, he'd, he'd like me at the end of the day. Sure, I, I mean, who couldn't like you? I know. Man? I mean, come on. What about I, you? You know, okay. So I'd settle up the tax bill first and foremost. Then I would cut the remainder completely in half, and I would immediately just give away half to some of my favorite charities. Charity Water, for one, uh, Wounded Warriors, two of my favorite charities out there. I would make sure I would give as much of that money away as I, as I possibly could, while still being able to just kind of maintain a reasonable lifestyle for me and my family. Reasonable? Uh, You're a millionaire, Jason. Go unreasonable. Yeah, I, I, don't feel, I don't feel comfortable 
living in excess. I mean, I like simple being man, able to just pleasures. enjoy life, and you know, I would probably, I would probably come to work the next day because I love what I'm doing, man. I, I you know, I would just be doing it at home if I wasn't doing it here. Um, you could buy you know, the Motley Fool. I would invest just... like a madman. <laughs> yeah, there I would you go. invest like a madman, and yeah, maybe I would buy the. Fool. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I'd give Tom and David an offer they can't refuse. <laughs> eh? All right. Well, that is it for us. Email us your ideas for what you do with $1.6 billion to radio at fool.com. Jason Moser, thank you for being here. Thank you. Uh, Just a reminder that the market is closed on Monday. So, Friday, as usual, we've got the radio show. We won't have any market foolery on Monday, but we will be back Tuesday, and I hope to see you all then. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Austin Morgan. I'm Mark Reith. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.